Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 52, starting with verse 13 to the end of the 53rd chapter. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord.
Welcome. Uh, for those of you who are new uh, to our service, I want you to know that we are working ourselves through the New City Catechism, and today we are on question number 19, and so we'd like to just review the previous questions before we get into today's text. So uh, let's begin, and again, I invite those of you who have been memorizing to uh, just close your eyes and to recite, uh, and those uh, who have not, uh, to look on and to uh, Repeat as, uh, as, as you see up on the, uh, on the board. Let's begin. Question one. What is our only hope in life and death? Question two. What is God? Question three. How many persons are there in God? Question four. How and why did God create us? Question five. What else did God create? Question six. How can we glorify God? Question seven. What does the law of God require? Question eight. What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Question 14. Did God create us unable to keep the law? Fifteen. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Sixteen. What is sin? Seventeen. What is idolatry? Eighteen. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? And today's question 19. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, this day that you have made. And help us now in the hearing of your word to be challenged, to be encouraged. And to be brought into a deeper understanding of your favor. Of the reconciliation that you make possible for us. Through the redeemer that you yourself have provided for us. So help us to know this truth. To live according to it. And to bless others with it. We thank you and pray in Jesus name. Amen. So. uh, Today, you may, you'll notice that uh, the key is uh, a new color. Uh, we're now 
coming out of the blue keys. You may have forgotten, but the blue keys were the uh, keys about God. And then all the beige keys were the law. We've been with the law for a long time. And now we're coming out to the Redeemer. And so it's going to be a pink, so you can please pick up your keys. And again, I just encourage you to keep this as a reminder to uh, work through um, the catechism as a way of just giving you a, a foundation to give you confidence about what God has done and is doing. And so uh, today, uh, last week we've, we heard about the, the punishment. We heard about the justice that God will enact uh, in this life and in the life to come. And today we are going to find out that there is a way out of this, out of our predicament of punishment and sin. And that is that God will reconcile us to himself by a redeemer. In the book of Isaiah, this redeemer uh, is identified as a servant of God. In the book of Isaiah, there are actually four poems or four songs about this servant of the Lord. And uh, I want to just give you a a brief picture of these earlier poems to set up the poem that we just heard uh, this morning. Because they they build up to what what we heard. In the first song, in Isaiah 42, God promises that the servant of the Lord will establish justice. That that is the activity that the servant of the Lord will accomplish. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. So justice will be established, but not through the usual mechanism of political power. Instead, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring about justice. And so his kingdom, his justice, will be characterized by gentleness and faithfulness. Then in the second song, in Isaiah 49, God addresses the failure of his servant Israel. So Israel is God's servant. But now in the second song, we see that Israel has failed as God's servant. They have failed to be the light to the nations. And so God now needs to bring another servant to bear that light to the nation of Israel, as well as to all of the other nations. God says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that is Israel, back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So God's plan of salvation for the world, for salvation, is for the world. I will make you my servant as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So we see now this this wider plan, not just for Israel, but this hope for the whole world. In the third song, in Isaiah 50, we get a picture now, the beginnings of the suffering that the servant will have to endure and the vindication that will come at the end. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So this this servant has this confidence that though he will endure this incredible suffering, God is near and will vindicate him. And so now we get to the reading today, 
This is the fourth of the four songs. It's the longest, and it kind of takes all of those other themes and it raises it to new heights. The song that you heard this morning, there are, uh, there are five stanzas of three verses each. In the first and fifth stanza, God is speaking. That is, God has the first word and the last word. And in the middle nine verses, we get a description, a, a fuller description of what this servant of the Lord looks like and is going to do. So in the first stanza, there is this surprise about God's servant. It says that God's servant, the servant of the Lord, will be exalted. That's expected. But what is not expected and is even offensive is that this servant, his appearance will be so marred, it will be beyond human recognition. And then it goes on to say that this servant will sprinkle many nations. It's a little bit unclear what that phrase, sprinkled nations, means, but it seems to point to the idea of animal sacrifices and of the blood that is sprinkled that was used as an act of forgiveness. And so maybe this marring of physical appearance beyond recognition and the sprinkling points to the kind of death and sacrifice that the servant will undergo. And it's going to be something that will just utterly shock the nations. In the second stanza, this question, who has believed what we have heard? It's just unbelievable, this news that they are going to hear. How the servant of the Lord is going to be revealed. He's someone who grows up among them, but is completely ignored and unrecognized. He's someone who people avoid because he's just, you know, unappealing. He has no majesty. He has no beauty. He's rejected by men, and we esteem him not. He does not look like a powerful redeemer or even a servant of God. I think people often think of God's servants being physically attractive or at least having some sort of a halo uh, above their heads. The Bible says, for example, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. King Saul looked like a king. He was tall and handsome. In fact, it says that there was no one in all Israel who was more handsome than he. That's how you get chosen. King David had beautiful eyes. And is described as being attractive looking. Many of us, I know, we, we carry these idolatrous images of a very good looking Jesus in our heads, right? But Isaiah says, this servant of God, this redeeming one, will be unattractive, rejected, despised, one who is acquainted with grief and sorrow. He's like all those who suffer in the world today, right? We might hear about those. Um, refugees in Syria. We hear about uh, the latest shooting victims in California um, or any number of tragedies going on in this country and in the world. We pay attention briefly, maybe we offer a prayer, but then we move on to something else. We turn our eyes away from the ugliness to something more shiny and pleasant. We esteem them not. And yet that is precisely where and who the servant of God is. And now in the next stanza, in the third stanza, this is where really the the most, perhaps the most important thing, the really shocking news comes. This servant whom the world rejected somehow has borne our griefs. 
He carries our sorrows. He's pierced our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds or his stripes we are healed. It's an incredible statement to be made. And it has this idea of someone giving their life for the sake of another. It's an idea that, of course, whenever we uh, hear about uh, in any story of someone doing that, uh, we find, you know, inspirational. Um, I was reading this week about uh, Ernest Gordon, who for many years was the Presbyterian Dean of the Chapel at Princeton University. He was a prisoner of war during World War II, and he was part of that, that ended up building uh, part of the, uh, the, the railway. It was nicknamed the Death Railway because uh, I think something like 80,000 uh, POWs died in its construction through the Bur- uh, Burmese jungle. Uh, there was a, a movie made about it, uh, a fictionalized account, the bridge over the river Kauai. Um, he was a prisoner there for three years, and he's a six foot three when he w- became a prisoner. He was a six foot three agnostic. Um, but malaria, diphtheria, typhoid, beriberi, and jungle ulcer brought his weight down below 100 pounds. And he was placed in the death ward where people they assumed were not going to make it and were just going to die. That's where they just put all the people who were about to die there. Miraculously, he was cared for in that ward by two Christians. And it was their testimony and their care of him that brought him to, back to this life and, and gave him hope and led him eventually to Christ, to seminary, and, and, and so on. Uh, and it was their testimony, their, their simple testimony, that just had this incredible uh, influence on him. Well, in his memoir, Through the Valley of the Kwai, he tells about a time when a group of soldiers uh, were threatened with death because their work crew, um, you know, they, had these, they would count the number of tools after each uh, work shift, and one of the shovels was missing. And so the guard took out his gun, and he threatened to shoot the entire crew unless the missing shovel could be produced right away. Well, one of the soldiers, one of the prisoners of war, he stepped forward. And so the guard then put away his gun, and and he started beating the man, uh, nearly killing him. Afterwards, the crew had to go to another place, and then they had to do another tool check, and they discovered that, in fact, the shovel was not missing, but that the guards had miscounted them. Well, the news of this incident spread through the camp that an innocent man had volunteered, had willingly volunteered to die so that the rest of the crew could survive. It had a profound impact on the soldiers and the prisoners, and they began to treat one another much more lovingly. They began to treat each other as brothers, whereas previously they were more like, it was more like every man for himself. Right? There, there, there is this, this incredible inspirational power when such a sacrifice of love is made. And, and we admire these kind of heroic efforts. Uh, you know, we hope that when we are, if we are ever faced with such a situation, that we would want to react in that kind of way, right? I, I, I hope I would be able to act in that kind of way. That would be an aspiration for myself, for my kids, for all of us. Um, but what the servant in Isaiah does is far more than just setting an example or to inspire others. 
it's not just the giving up of his life for the life of another or even the lives of many. It doesn't entirely make sense, but somehow the guilt of the world is transferred from the world to this one servant. He has borne all our griefs. He has somehow taken on all the iniquities of the world upon himself. And for that, he is pierced and he is wounded. He takes all the punishment that was due to us upon himself. This servant takes all our pains, all our punishments in our place. He will carry all our griefs and all our sorrows. There is an exchange that is happening here. A substitution. A vicarious suffering that takes place that the servant does for us. Theologically, this is known as substitutionary atonement. That is that the servant of God will be our substitute, one who will take our place, our pains, and our punishment so that we might be atoned, made at one, and reconciled with God. Now, those of you who've been in the church for a while, been Christians for a while, you know that this is familiar. It may seem like old news. Yeah, of course, someone you know, has to die for my sins. But, but it's, a, it's a radical, shocking idea. And that's why Isaiah says that the nations are shocked into silence because it's just... It was unimagined that something like this would be done, that this would be God's solution. Because we understand that people should pay for their sins. If you steal, you you should pay back, or you should be punished in some way. And in the Old Testament, the law had it so that animal sacrifices would be made to atone for those sins, so that God and people and neighbors could be reconciled. The animal sacrifice was a substitute to take the punishment on our behalf. But as the book of Hebrews says, those sacrifices were only an annual reminder of our sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's a temporary solution because the pattern of sin remains. The pattern of sin remains. And so it's going to take now this this servant of God who will bear our sins once and for all. It will be the servant of God who takes our place. His suffering is for us. Notice the repeated use of the plural here. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. He suffers for us. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we often think of suffering... Um, in one of two ways, really. We think of suffering either as a punitive, that is, you do something wrong and you rightly punish for it, or sometimes we think of suffering as, well, it's, it's a good lesson, right? You, you learn something from this. So we think of when someone is suffering, we sometimes will misjudge them and say, well, you're being punished because you did something wrong, which might be the case, or that God is punishing them. Again, it might be the case. Or, you know, you go through some suffering in your life, some hardship in your life, and you say, well, you know, this will put hair on your chest. Or this will will make a man out of you, right? Um, You you learn something from this. It will make you stronger and and so on. But here we see that suffering has, has another possibility, that it can be redemptive. That there can be something 
to redeem people. And the servant does that, enters into punishment and pain to redeem as a substitute for those who are deserving of the pain and punishment. The fourth stanza then goes on to continue to describe the suffering and the injustice of the servant. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he remained silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living, that is, that he died, and he was buried among the wicked, and his grave was with a rich man. He had done no violence, there was no deceit, and yet he is severely punished and judged. Then we get to the final three verses, the final stanza, and we get an explanation of why this has happened. And this is really one of those verses that just, it just I don't know, it just, should just kind of pop out at you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. In some of the older translations it says, and it was, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He, God, the Lord, has put his servant to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so here now we begin to make some sense of the suffering that the servant has gone through. God has put him to grief. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The twist is that, you know, people saw the servant of the Lord. You know, he he's just being destroyed. And people thought he's being punished by God. He's smitten, smitten of God. He's afflicted by God. But it turns out that suffering actually was a sign that he is the servant of God and that he was in obedience to God. It it ought to at least give us pause. We, We should not assume that one who is suffering is being punished for sin. It is sometimes, but here we see now again, there is something, something else that is going on. It's the suffering and the death of the servant that makes intercession for us, for transgressors. I mean, it really is an amazing statement that... In obedience to God, the servant of the Lord has voluntarily suffered and has given up his life, bearing the sins of the world. The servant is not a victim, is not a victim, but confidently and faithfully participates in the work of God. And through it all, he remains silent. He does not complain to God. He acts wisely because he has no guilt of his own. He knows what's going on. And because of this, He's able to faithfully, fully participate even in this. And because of this, God says he will be fully vindicated. He will make many righteous and shall have great reward. God's redemption for the nations comes not through a conquering hero as many had thought, but through a suffering servant. 2,000 years ago, an Ethiopian official was driving home and was confused by this passage. He wondered about whom does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? The question of the identity of this servant of the Lord is one that continues to be debated among scholars today. Is the servant described here in Isaiah, Isaiah himself or perhaps some other prophet? Is a servant of the Lord a representative, a personification of the nation of Israel, or perhaps the faithful portion of Israel? Or is this a description of a redeemer who is to come? 
or perhaps some combination of all of those possibilities. With all due respect to the ongoing debate and discussion about this identity, as a Christian, as a Christian, it is impossible not to see, not to hear in this reading, to see that this servant of God, the one who is despised and rejected of men, the one who is full of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the one who has pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the one upon whom chastisement fell for our peace, the one upon whose wounds we are healed, this one upon who remains silent before his accusers, the one cut off from the land of the living, the one who had done no violence and in whom no deceit was found in his lips, the one who was numbered among the wicked, the one who was with the rich man in his death, the one whom the Lord willed to crush, the one who bore our iniquities, and the one in whom the Lord delights. This one for us can be no other than Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers drew repeatedly from this reading to interpret the life and the death of Jesus Christ. In his death, Jesus took our sins. For our sins, Jesus was pierced. By his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. He died on the cross between two thieves among the wicked. He was buried in the tomb prepared by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows to make peace possible for us. This is the heart of the gospel. God himself will provide a redeemer for us. The perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You probably don't know who Helen Shapiro is, but at one point when she was a teenager, she was an extremely popular singer. In fact, in 1963, another band that no one had yet heard of, the Beatles, used to open for her. I mean, they were her opening act. Unfortunately, her career declined very rapidly after her teenage years, and she drifted uh, from her uh, Jewish upbringing toward um, New Age, you know, looking at all kinds of different things, toward agnosticism and kind of lost faith altogether. Then one day, uh, someone gave her a book by Stan Talchin entitled Betrayed. Now, Talchin was a, a leader of a, a Jewish community, and his daughter had become a Christian, and it just devastated him. And so he wanted to show that Jesus was a fraud using the Old Testament. And he started studying the scriptures, and he ended up writing this book, Betrayed, because in his search, he discovered that, in fact, Jesus is not a fraud, but he became convinced that Jesus is a promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so she read that book, and through that book, she discovered that, quote, Isaiah 53 was about how he took our sin. I was gobsmacked. That's British for utterly astonished. Gobsmacked. She then went on to read, quote, the chunk on the end I'm not supposed to read, right? Meaning the New Testament, the chunk at the end that I wasn't supposed to read. 
And reading the Gospels, she became convinced that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah. And she says, the creator and sustainer of the universe came to live in my life. I didn't get religion. I got Jesus, and I love him. Both Talchin and Shapiro saw that they just could not escape in hearing this, this servant song, that this can be none other than Jesus. And, and this is why, you know, Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Because you can begin here, you can see the plan of God and the promise of God in the suffering servant savior that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, let, let me just make one reflection, or let me just close with this. The, there's a preacher, uh, writer, named Louis uh, Smedes, or Smedes, and he posed this very simple question. He asked, if I were to ask, how many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you would raise your hands? How many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hands. Not everyone, really? Really? Wow. Presumably, everybody would want to go to heaven. But what if I then asked, how many of you want to go to heaven right now? Not quite so sure. Yeah, that's right. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I probably should raise my hand. That's probably the right answer. But then you kind of like your life, right? There are a few more things you want to binge watch on Netflix. And you don't want to go quite yet, right? He says that we are not standing tiptoe on the tarmac, eager to fly away to heaven before the sun sets. We are not eager. You know, I remember when I was in college, someone asked me a version of this question, and I thought, you know, the right answer is, yeah, I should want to go right now. And I thought that my reluctance to, like, just wholeheartedly say yes uh, was a sign to me that I was lacking in faith, that I didn't really trust God, that I didn't really believe uh, heaven was better or something like that. So maybe it is a sheer lack of imagination. Maybe we think of heaven as, well, you know, I suppose it would be good, but we're just going to be like floating around, playing the harp, and like, how much fun is that really, right? Maybe it is a sheer lack of imagination uh, as we sort of think about what that might be. Or, as Smeads suggests, this combination of longing simultaneously for heaven and earth tells us something about the way God made us. Maybe it's the simple fact that we were created to enjoy the world, to love others, to marvel at God's creation draws us to want to stay. God created everything, and all his creation was very good. We should want to stick around and enjoy the gift of life that God makes possible. Yet at the same time, we also recognize in the world the evil, the fallenness, the ugliness of life. And as the hardness of life beats us down, or perhaps simply as we get older and as our bodies fail, we are then ready for something better, 
a better hope. Maybe somewhere between the tug of earth and the pull of heaven, we discover that the creator himself wants to maintain this creation. And this is how we were created. So the creator made himself into a creature, just like one of us, became a servant to take up all our wrong and brokenness and promises to be with us through all our pain, through all our suffering, so that in the end, we would be saved. We are redeemed for the life to come, but we also have redemption for this life to more fully live this life and glorify God here and now. I don't know about you, but this, this was a really big discovery for me because for me, you know, when I became a Christian, the idea was you got to get saved because there's an eternity of heaven and hell and you want to make sure that you're in heaven and not in hell. So the only thing I was thinking about at the time was, well, I got to make sure my eternal destiny is set. I've got to avoid hell. I got to go to heaven. And so I wasn't thinking about its implications for this life. I was thinking about the life to come. I want to be in heaven. But what the suffering servant has done and what the cross means for us, it's not simply about kind of just like riding out this life and like, oh, I can't wait to die so I can go to heaven. It's that this life is that much more precious. It's a gift given to us to live out, to glorify God now in this life and in the life to come. We are not just waiting for something better. This life is precious, and the lives of those around us are precious. God has called his creation good and has redeemed us and has redeemed us and has provided a way out of our sinful predicament. From the beginning, God's will was that by his stripes we would be healed and be reconciled. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes, absolutely. God reconciles us to himself by a redeemer who takes our place, who willingly bears all our pains and punishment. This is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe the good news and be at peace. Let's pray. God, we hear uh, in the reading today that you had prepared for us a redeemer, that it was not an afterthought after the fall, but that from the beginning you had prepared for us a redeemer. And that this redeemer, your son, Jesus, makes possible for us to be reconciled. Because it was your will that he bear all our sins, all our griefs. And upon him, upon him, the punishment that was for us, upon him it all fell. So, God, we thank you for providing a way. And having trusted you 
and having been redeemed, help us to live today with the joy and the freedom that this redemption makes possible. To live with the kind of love and sacrifice for others that you have demonstrated for us. Help us to believe this word that you are the Redeemer and that in you is our future and all our hopes. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. At this